G'day, welcome back to another edition of Peloton on Pause, brought to you by Green Edge. It's the director's edition, and it's two guys I've spent a lot of time in team cars, uh, a lot of great memories. We've got Lorenzo Lepage, the Prince of Belgium, and uh, Matthew Wade, uh, who's uh, in a bit of a bad spot, I reckon, because Whitey, the Giro was your favourite race. You love the people, the culture, uh, the food. How are you holding up, mate? Yeah, look, I, ha- I haven't resi- resi- haven't gone to drinking red wine every night and uh, eating pasta, but look, it, it does feel weird, Chunzi. Uh, you know, the last 22, 23 years, I've only missed four or five editions of the Giro, and uh, it is a race that I really love. And for me, the month of May is Italy. And uh, look, hopefully we're back there in October with a vengeance. But uh, yeah, this month of May is certainly a, a different one for me. And Lorenzo, what's life like over in uh, Belgium at the moment, mate? You still sinking a few doovles in your spare time? Yeah, we also had uh, two months lockdown, but we we, all, we were always allowed to go outside, so we could have a, a walk or we could we could practice. Not not the same as in other countries. So, but we were not allowed to have uh, friends coming over. So a lot of people at at home, yeah, some doovles and sometimes some wine. But uh, yeah, missing the race, like I think, like everyone who's involved in cycling uh, was missing, especially the March, April, the, the, the big months here in Belgium with the classics and everything. So that's uh, something we missed, yeah. I was going to say, like, um, cycling, a lot of people wouldn't know that is number one sport in Belgium. Um, how have the locals been not getting their cycling fix? Did they um, dive into, I think they tried an interactive version of Flanders. Didn't they like it was like a version of Zwift or whatever? Did did the locals get into that? Yeah, we had a lot of uh, viewers on, on on that day. Everything was live on television. The same speakers, uh, same journalists will give commentary uh, also in normal races. So it was popular, but of course it's not the same for the people. Uh, and because we were allowed to go outside, a lot of people started uh, biking. So if you go, if you went out with your car, you were hundreds of hundreds of people uh, on the bike that you never see otherwise. So I think people, and they're still talking in newspaper. There's a lot of things going on in newspaper, on television. So they showed uh, all the dishes from races on television always. And the people, they were, they were really great uh, viewers on that, uh, great amount of viewers. And what, what was it like in uh, Valencia? Obviously, the restrictions have been pretty tight in, in Spain as well. Um, what, what's it been like over the last couple of months? Yeah, so we ha- Spain and Italy had pretty harsh lockdowns. We had, look, I think Spain's nearly just under 30,000 deaths and Italy's just over. So we're, we're still in phase one of lockdown. So for eight weeks, uh, we couldn't leave the house except to go to buy essential goods. So supermarket, pharmacy, they were pretty much the only things that were open for eight weeks. Kids weren't allowed out of the house for eight weeks. Now, thank God I don't live in an 80-metre-square apartment. But uh, in the, the last two weeks, we're allowed to leave in certain windows. So I can exercise, adults can exercise between 6 and 10 in the morning. Then you've got senior citizens hour between 12 and 1, uh, sorry, 10 and 11, and then, or 10 and 12, then 12 till 7 is for kids. And then, again, another hour for senior citizens between 7 and 8, and then 8 o'clock to 11 o'clock is adults exercise again. And so, you know, it's... School, my kids haven't been to school since the second week of March. School is is canned here until the first week of September. So that's going to be six months no school or or, or to organised team sport. It's been uh, it's been challenging. Let's put it that way. Uh, yeah, I was going to uh, say your your kids are very active um, and they love their sport. I mean, how have they been holding up through all of this? 
Look, lucky we we have a pool. So the last three to four weeks, the kids have been in the pool every day, and it's been warm enough. It's thirty degrees here today, and it's been warm enough the last two weeks. And also, we we've got a backyard and a, and front yard, and I, I got a home trainer for the first time in my house in fifteen years, and I jumped on Swift and. Even the, my boys, all the kids were on Swift as well. We put, changed the bikes and they, they haven't got video games. Uh, and so that, well, they didn't until about three weeks ago till we cracked. Um, <laughs> and uh, they were jumping on Swift and riding it every day and just mucking around. They were doing something. <clears> but uh, they, they got into a bit of a routine. They've got a little bit of schoolwork to do, but it's uh, it's not their normal routine. And and also, my, my kids were in Oz in December. and I mean, sorry, in, Dece- in all of January and 10 days of December. So... They haven't really. They've have been so out of their own road, out of their normal routine for such a long period. Um, yeah, it's gonna be. It'd be, it'd be great to get them back at school anyway. And uh, Lorenzo, a lot of people that we've had on the podcast have, have developed new school uh, skills in this uh, lockdown period. You know, they've either taken to cooking or um, you know they're, they're into this TikTok craze. You know, into dancing and things like that. Any, any new skills that you've developed during this two month period, Lapage? Well, actually, uh, the thing the thing what I do more now is I go walk every day, uh, one one and a half hour, uh, and I have I had a small uh, business about uh, cycling clothing, so I'm trying to develop that more now because I have more time. So things like that, I'm uh, I'm still I'm, I'm that because there's a lot of, of 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 things going on in Belgium now also for the protection masks. They're not enough, so I try to be in that business a bit, and yeah, we have to 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 fill up our days because it's not not possible to sit at home and do nothing. Yeah, exactly. And what about what about you, Wadi? Did you develop any new skill sets over the lockdown period? Well, I wouldn't say skill sets, but I think I did more. I've done more reading in this last two months than I would uh, I would ever do. Usually, you know me, James. When I'm at races, I don't I, I don't do anything except go to the race. I can't switch off. But at home, I'm okay. So I've actually been. Reading a lot, and I've, uh, you know, I'm, for me, I'm not someone who really got into series on television and stuff, and I, and I really have. I've got into some great series on Netflix, read a lot, and uh, yeah, so just did some things that I usually don't have time to or or uh, have time to do. So it's been, it's that's been a bit of a positive, I suppose, uh, and I suppose as well because because I have jumped on Swift, I um, I'm probably the probably the, feel the best I've ever felt since I retired on a bike at the moment. Um, it's just intensity, and when I ride, usually ride bikes, I usually just jump on and go for a cruise. And uh, Swift, I didn't have that mentality. I'd go on and race, so I was enjoying doing some real short, intense races. And uh, now I've come back, uh, just riding the bike normally. It's actually I feel really good on the bike and uh, really enjoying it. Are you uh, tempted to get into the Swift Lepage? Get back to the old track days, mate? No, I'm, I'm full. <laughs> I'm, I, uh, I'm, like I say, I'm in, into walking uh, every day. Yeah. Last week I did, for example, almost 50 kilometers walking in one week. Wow. This morning I did already one and a half hours. So I feel good with that. So uh, yep. I'm a little bit older as Whitey. That's why also. But I, I, <laughs> when I hear these things about Swift, maybe he can uh, resign next year and come back on the bike again. Yeah, well, that's right. You are looking yeah. bloody fit, Whitey. I'll give you that. Um Speaking of bikes, I remember when you sold me a bike, Lorenzo, back in the day, at the uh, at the Herald Sun tour, and uh, you're in a you're in a little stand there, and you sold me a bike that was uh, actually about four centimeters too small. You're, yeah, you're a bloody you're con man. I was thinking I will never see you again. So I, I, that, that guy in Australia, 
I'm going to sell him that bike so I never come back here. I will never see him again. And then two years after, or three years after, you were there again. I said, whoa, that's going to be a problem. <laughs> yeah, well, I, did, I did square you up. Remember that time we saw you on the last day of the Tour de France when we were working for Fox and you were there and um, you, you won the Tour that year with Astana. And yeah, you your nice pressed shirt, and I remember opening a beer up, and it just sprayed all over you and ruined so your actually, outfit. Actually, so. actually, you did that a bit upset. Yeah, that's right. It was a square oh. up. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Sure. I only know. Uh, that's good. I only know it now. <laughs> yeah, hey, now uh, I, saw, well, I, I saw you coming. I said, "That's." They were talking when I was signing for the team. They were talking about Dan Jones, cameraman. And then I saw you coming. I said, "Oh, not that guy." <laughs> yeah. The yeah. con man. Um, <laughs> how's how's this period been, Whitey, from a director's point of view? Obviously, it's been tough with the writers, you know, not knowing when they're going to get started. The, this obviously the stop-start nature of the season, given that you guys had a pretty strong start to the year. Um, how's it been from the management of the the team, from a writer's perspective, and so forth? Yeah, I think we've had a couple of different phases there. At the start of the at the start of the shutdown. I was actually in a camp in Spain uh, when we had maybe 10, 12 guys uh, up up near Andorra. And because the, fir- the first set of races were getting cancelled, Paranese stopped, and or the team had decided we weren't going to Paranese and Torano. So to supplement that, we got the guys together and had this training camp. And just as this training camp was like two days in, Spain started to lock down. And uh, so that initial phase, we had to get everyone home, get out of that training camp. We had people from Italy that, at the camp as well. And we everyone we, we we cut the camp short. We boys rode back to Drona the next days. So we did three days of a of a plan, ten or eleven day camp. And at the, at the start, we didn't sort of realise how big this thing was going to be. So it was always it was then just putting the goals, but just back a little bit. Let's just see what happens, see how this evolves. And then after that phase evolved, and you know, you know, Europe basically went into shutdown for six or seven weeks. For us, it went pretty quiet. You know, there wasn't too much for us to do. I think it was more the coaches. The coaches were having, obviously, daily contact with the guys. Some guys wanted to continue through that period quite intensely because that was their normal period of intense racing for the classics. We had some swift racing. We had some ruby racing. And that was really the coaches. We I had a little bit to do with that, but not too much. And there was a period there where we didn't have much at all. And it's only these last 10 days, really, since we've got we've got a new calendar up for grabs, which starts maybe or world tour wise, it starts on August the first. We might have Burgos, which starts the week before, and we're only now locking in our plans for that rest of the season. So this last week's been nice and busy, and we can get our heads back into the game. And uh, for, it's only starting now. That I think all the guys are in that period with base kilometres before they start doing a lot more intensity in the months of June and July to get ready back for competition. Hey Lorenzo, what's been the feedback from the proposed calendar in uh, Belgium? Um, what do the the fans and alike think of um, the revised schedule? In in Belgium, when you talk about uh, races, you know people here are crazy about Flanders and those races. So for the moment, they are they are all on, and uh, the tour the tour is the most important race that you know that too. So uh, people are talking about that, but the most important is for the people in Belgium here the, the Belgium classics and semi classics, and they are all on. So they're preparing now uh, things like they were doing before for. For that period, so to, to go and watch the races and do uh, from point to point, and yeah, you know how people are, they're crazy about cycling. So, um, it's actually they do the same as they did for, for the races when they were in March or April, so they are just happy it's on. Are they expecting those races to have any crowds, or have they said anything about that, or restricted sort of areas? Or, 
It might it'd be hard with the Belgies once they're sort of at a skin full of doubles to stick to the one point five meters. And the thing is that the thing is there the the rules from the UCI are, are also changing now actually every day or every second day. So I, I, what I what for the moment the plan is that the start and the finish area is gonna be more uh, Suspended for 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 uh, uh, viewers, for uh, the, the the fans, but I think on 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 a course from two hundred kilometers, if people can, you can put people everywhere, and it's not things like the the VIP area on the on the quarter and things like that going to be less, of course, because you cannot do that for the moment. But uh, I think also with what happened the last two three months, people are a little bit more uh, prepared for everything, and I think people are not so stupid to take risks so i think that will happen but i think it will be more over the course everywhere not on on, on certain uh places like before we had the quarterman was it was crazy thousands of thousands of people mm. but i think people were going to be now all over the course yeah um what about whitey from a i suppose the big thing from a logistics perspective with so many staff and such a compact calendar is that going to be one of the biggest challenges trying to work out, okay, well, we need staff at this point and this point? Because, I mean, for example, one day you've got Roubaix, you've got the Giro and the Vuelta all sort of clashing the one mm. moment. Is that going to be the biggest sort of headache moving forward, do you think? Uh, at the moment, yes. But I, look, the, the whole, our whole – what the new cycling is going to look like when we return, there's still a lot of questions to be answered. And we don't know, you know, there, I know there's working groups at the moment with the UCI and all the team doctors of what the, the best best case scenario looks like for the athletes and, and staff. But at the end of the day, we're going to be of the mercy of every country's health department. So we don't know what it's going to look like at hotels. We don't actually know if how many people, we, staff, we're going to be able to bring to these races. It might be even restricted. We might we might, might not be able to do massage. And so, I know at the moment, as we stand, uh, massage is not allowed in Italy. So... Of course, things may change by the time we get to October, but there's so many questions that we, you know, we're we working on it, but we're not going to know the answer and we're not going to know the real logistics for another month, I would think. Geez, it really does open the door up. This is unlike, obviously, any season that we've seen in our lifetime. Um, does this really present some unbelievable opportunities for, for these big races that are up for grabs? Uh, why do you like particularly things like the Tour? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think... The, the overlapping of the, all the, the big races is going to be one thing. I think if oh, I think a lot of the teams are going to put obviously their best teams in the tour, which frees up the Giro uh, a little bit uh, because there's no overlapping. Guys won't be going from the tour to the Giro this year. The other one is uh, how do guys handle training for these races? Because you know, there's going to be a maximum of 10 days of competition for guys who are doing the Tour de France. Now, some guys, some of these guys, Tom Dumoulin, uh, Rodgley, Cruiswick, Froome, they haven't even raced this year. Uh, so there's guys there that haven't raced for, for going to be more than a year, 15 months without any competition, and they're going to have two, maximum two short stage races. So some guys are going to react really well to that, and some guys aren't. And now normally you start in the Tour de France with 25, 30 race days. Guys will be starting with 10, 10, 10 to 15 maximum. So that's going to be that's a big difference. People who can train really well uh, and people who, you know, who that could have a big effect on the third week of these races, especially the first, the Giro and the Tour, because uh, not many races are going to be done beforehand. The Vuelta a little bit different because I, I do see a few of the key guys doing doing two of Vuelta. You've got that month in between, but uh, yeah, it's, it, there is, and you know, the, because of the overlapping of certain key races. I think you may see some different winners, some winners that you wouldn't have normally seen uh, in these races, which, which will be exciting. 
Um, you were chatting earlier about obviously Zwift and and how this has sort of taken the the cycling world by storm. Um, do you how do you find the reaction to it all? And and do you think that there's going to be a spot for this even in the future when things sort of go back to normal, given the the mass popularity of streaming this sort of stuff live? Oh, I do. I think I think what what people have realised, and I think the lockdown has forced people to get onto home trainers out of necessity. But people have realised that actually. If you do, if you're doing specific work on these home trainers, a lot of these guys I've spoke to in the last week, our, our riders, they're, they're actually feeling really good uh, because you're doing intensity and it's and it's intense and it's structured. And then the only thing they're lacking at the moment is volume because they, you know, they haven't done until two weeks ago they hadn't done a ride pretty much more than an hour uh, for two months. But they're feeling good, and I think it has its place. It has its place, it has its place for specific uh, training, but I also like Renzo was saying before, that the tour of, virtual Tour of Flanders had 1 million viewers, okay, 600,000 mm. in Belgium, but that 1 million viewers of a virtual bike race. Now, there is actually eSports. Uh, cycling is very unique in the fact that our eSports is actually physical. You know, what you have to put out power and you have to really push yourself on our eSports. You know, it's not, not playing with a control game. It's, uh, it's very different, and I, and I do see... I do see esports taking off with cycling, and I think it has. I think it has got a big future for streaming and also competition. Yeah, Lorenzo. After the Flanders, are they expecting to do more of these type of races in Belgium? Given how many people tuned into it, uh, yeah, they were talking about. But uh, like, for example, after Flanders, we had also uh, a tour of Swiss uh, on, on in that car, in, in that way. So. But I, I still think, like Whitey said, it's going to be a, it can be a part in the future for it. But people are still waiting for the for the real stuff to to, to see. And and the the, the Swift style was also something that riders already used before in a kind of way. They if they did specific trainings on their TT bike or something, a lot of them were doing that already on rollers. So, but it's going to be a part for the future, I think. And it, it's it's a good thing for for people uh, drive, doing rides with with with, with the stars. And I think they're going to do it like this, but the the real the real thing on the road that's still something they're missing, and I don't think that you can compare those two. Um, now, stepping away from the current sort of cycling stuff, a lot of the fans want to know um, about your beginnings uh, becoming a, a sports director. I'll start with you, Lorenzo. Did you always know that you wanted to become a DS when you were a writer? How did you sort of step into the role as a as a sports director? No, actually, I didn't. I didn't know because I, uh, I was till till thirty seven. I was a professional uh, rider. I did a lot of track racing, six days, and the year before, uh, I got the opportunity to to become a uh, sports director. The year after, actually, my first year, I was only for twenty percent sports director. I did eighty percent of uh, VIP stuff, going on the road with uh, VIPs and and riding around in the classics from point to point and things like that. So. Uh, but I never had the idea before to, to become a sports director. I was always thinking, I mean, I stopped racing. I just go and go in the business from my, uh, my father. We had uh, like a business in cycling clothing. So we, I was born and always with, in sport and those people came over. But that was my idea. And I got, at the end, I got the chance to, do the, to go come in that job. And um, what about you, Wadi? You, you were approached when you were a rider, yeah, to, to become a DS pretty much straight from uh, when you finish your career is that? Yeah, look, I, I didn't think of it either. I think back, you know, cycling, people don't realise as well, unless you've been around cycling a while, that 
Now, when I was finishing up 2006, 2007, cycling was was nowhere near as international as it is now. You know, it's only those years after, two to three years after I retired, that, that the Skies, the BMCs, the, the Oricas, all those teams existed. So, you know, back in the day, you know, Belgians employed Belgians, Italians employed Italians, French employed French, and there wasn't any real opportunities for anyone outside sort of that bubble. And uh, I did get approached. Dave Miller spoke to me um, in my last year of riding at the start of my last year. Hadn't even thought about retiring. I was only 33. And uh, I liked the idea, the startup team would turn into Garmin and uh, had to make a decision to continue to do one or two more years. Or my, my mindset at the time is, look, is one or two more years really going to change my life? Whereas if I get, I've got an opportunity now, if I don't take it, someone else will. And that might not be an opportunity to, to do that role in a one or two years' time. Little did I know that the sport was going to turn very international very quickly, but I'm happy with the decision and it's obviously a role that I, I really love. Um, what do you think, Lorenzo, makes a good DS? Like what are the what are the key attributes you think you need? I'm, I'm going to say, with, like for example, with Whitey, because uh, his last year he was in the team uh, where I was working already as a DS. You could feel already on the road that, that he, he's, he was a guy he 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 fell the race. He he could he could carry on a a group. He could motivate uh, other other riders. So that's the first thing. And the the other the other thing is also, especially now in that new generation, you don't have to uh, stand above your group. You have to stand in the middle of the group, and the the, the riders have to trust you. And it's a good thing. Like you you you've been a rider yourself. You feel you know how they feel when they are struggling, and 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 if it's if they are have bad moments. That's something you have to feel with them, and they have to trust you. That's the most important, I think. And then, beside that, uh, your uh, organization that the riders only have uh, to think about the bike and the results to make, and no nothing else uh, to have on their head. Um, it's definitely evolved over the years. Even the time I was there, Whitey, um, the role of the DS and how you have to um, change your sort of style to get the best out of the riders. Have you have you seen? It really developed because it seemed like in the old days it was a lot more of this sort of hard ass old school, you know, just do as you're told sort of thing. Whereas now it feels like it's a lot more. You bring in the riders as sort of shareholders, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think the big difference between uh, ten years ago is the amount of amount of help you've actually got. So, you know, when I first as a sport director, we had three sports directors did the whole calendar. Now, now we've got seven sport directors. So at every race, you're going to have a minimum of two. And sometimes you yeah, add the two, we have, you know, we have four sports directors. So, and, you know, we've got full-time coaches. We've got, you know, VART course people. We've got this, we've got that. So they actually, you've got a lot more people to help you in your role and it's becoming more specific. And like Lorenzo said, I think you know, we've got, in our team alone, we've got 20-year-olds and we've got 40-year-olds. So you've got to be able to, um, you've got to be able to relate to everyone. And that's, that's very different generations, you know. The 40-year-olds are basically our generation and the 20-year-olds are old enough to be your kids. So yeah, you, you speak to them very differently and, yeah, you do. You've, you've got to bring those people along the, along the journey with you and uh, they've got to buy into whatever you, whatever the plan is. They've got to buy into what the team culture stands for and, uh, and where we're going as, with results and, and who we are as a group. Lorenzo, you said you could see um, characteristics in Whitey in the early days to be a DS. Is there anyone in the, in the current squad uh, at Mitchell and Scott, that you think would be a good sports director? I think the last year we uh, or two years ago we brought uh, Matt, Matt Heyman in, and there was also someone uh, you could feel already on the bike that he had with all the experience he had and the way 
the, the young riders were uh, talking to him and listening to him. That's something, I think that's something you, you are born with. You, you, everyone, young or old, or they were all hanging on his lips when he was talking about, about uh, stuff in the race. So, and also they feel that he don't tell them uh, things just to, 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 to joke on everything what he says had some, had some, uh, how he says, help them actually. Yeah. yeah, had some meaning. So, uh, you don't have to talk too much, but I think if you talk, riders, in the, some riders, they want to find out themselves. And then after they say, yeah, actually, it was right what the director said. So you have different kind of riders, but it's, it's, a, it's a question. You, they have to feel like you're a part of the team, That not like my director is there and we are here. That's, that's over. That's the old days. For example, when I was uh, starting uh, as a rider, you were sitting at the table as a young guy. You couldn't almost not talk. The older guy said to you, shut mm. up. And the first two years, you didn't have to talk. So, <laughs> so that's completely different now. But uh, like you said, they're, they're coming in and, and, and they all have the, the, their words to say. Everyone can, can say his idea. But for example, the meetings with us, it's not a question about I'm the director. I say what's going on. No, it's a question about talking together and, and find a plan. And the director take the last word, of course. But uh, I, for me, it's, it's a better better system as, as, as the old days. Mm. Uh, Judge, I think that what makes what usually makes for a poor sports director and if you look back at even some of the best sports directors is usually the big champions and the big uh the big race winners uh they're usually not the best sport directors um because real champions and and people who are overachievers they they really do look at things in a very different way and they sometimes they don't because they're so talented most of these people okay they obviously they work very hard as well but usually if you're so talented and and winning comes easy to you it's quite hard for those guys to actually relate to, to guys who are struggling. And I think the, the key to being a good sports director is being able to relate to everybody. And I think big, big champions and big superstars, they know how they why they were good and they know how to, to do it for themselves. But I think a few of those guys in general, they do struggle with relating to everyone and, and that's, what, that's a very, very crucial role in, in our role. Um, getting off topic, you're talking about um, watching a lot of stuff on Netflix. Did you watch the Michael Jordan series, The Last Dance? It's obviously the biggest documentary in the world, and it's probably going to go down as one of the best. Um, it's amazing, isn't it? The insights of like the world's greatest, um, like you're saying, like Michael Jordan would be a shit house coach because of yeah. that mindset where they can't relate and they get frustrated. Um, <laughs> but also, I found in that doco that. Um, a lot of these old guys, like the champions, even when they stuffed up, right, they're not apologetic years later. Like, look at um, uh, Isaiah Thomas. All he had to say was, hey, mate, I should have shaken the hands. Yep, my bad. If I had my time again, I would have done it. He couldn't even do that. He's just no, like, no, no, nah, no. Nah, nah. The Celtics did it to us as well. And then he didn't, <laughs> he didn't think that there was cameras on that game that showed him grabbing the guy and shaking his hands. Yeah, but even yeah. even Scotty Pippen, when he wouldn't sit in that game where he thought he wanted the final shot, and they said, you know, do you regret doing it? Ah, oh, no, nah, man. You know, no. Probably no, wouldn't no. change again. Um, the one well, thing I noticed, Jonesy, I, I, I didn't really follow basketball back in the day. And I knew Jordan was good, like everyone in the world did. But... I didn't. What what it really did emphasise is how good he was. Like I, I knew he'd won numerous titles. If if you told me he'd won four titles or six titles, I wouldn't have known before I watched that series. But just the drive that that guy had over what that twelve or thirteen year period, and poor, yeah. Was, uh, he certainly one thing he certainly has proved that uh, Sha- Shaquille O'Neal and and uh, LeBron James, all those guys, actually they got nothing on him at the moment. 
there's a there's a good story. There's another good doco. Um, I have to send you a copy um, about the Dream Team in '92, and there's a one of the best stories was when they played. So Chuck Daly was the coach, similar like sports director, and he's like, "Geez, how am I going to manage this?" team of superstars i think 11 out of the 12 players were named in the top 50 nba players of all time so it could go down as the greatest team in in the history of sport anyway so what he did is he organized a a game against these college kids and he played them all out of position and benched jordan almost the whole game and the college kids actually beat them so they rolled them by like you know four points or whatever there's no cameras you know it was a lockout and then he said to him after the game he said look you know you guys are, are mortal you know you can be beaten so and then from then because leading up to that camp they wouldn't listen to what he said but once they shown a bit of vulnerability he said he could have them eating out of the palm of his hand so then the next time they played the college kids he played them all in the right positions and they have absolutely trounced them and beat every side by 30 points but um that's it's sort of similar getting back to your roles as ds's what do you what do you find is is the most difficult part of your job given that you know every day is different every race is different um every personality is different with who you're dealing with not just riders but staff as well i'll start with you lorenzo what, what do you find the most challenging part of your role but the, the thing is if like you say every day change the situation is changing it's it's there are different personalities but they are also how they react in different moments because if 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 riders, for example, athletes are are in a winning position, it's easier to, to manage them if if they are, uh, as they are in problems and struggling, and also that's the same with your staff. So the, the balance between staff and riders is so important too, because uh, a lot of young young riders coming over, if they don't have respect for their staff, because it's the staff actually who, who helps you to do your job. It's not the staff that you use to do your job, and that's that's the thing that also with Lance, for example, we had that. He always said, uh, listen, guys, the staff is here to help us. They are not here to play with them. And mm. that's a good thing. And, the rider is, and that's a good thing in our team because there's so much respect from the riders to the staff. And that respect is coming back then. And mm. that's uh, our role to sometimes... But you, you see also in this team, we are now with the, uh, busy with the ninth year. If you see how many staff left the team, there's almost nothing. No, no, but... And if the staff who left the team they are, or they are stopping because they want to be more at home, but for the rest, no one is, is, is leaving this team. And that's, that says enough. The, 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 the atmosphere is really good there. The respect between riders and staff is good there. Yeah, there, there are a lot of other teams where it's different. If in, and, and that's our role, actually, to, to, to find that balance and sometimes to talk to or athletes or staff, people that's not possible, do this or this. And we have to give the example then in those moments. Mm. What what about you, Whitey? What do, what do you find the most challenging part of your your role as a DS is? You know, I think at the moment is because we haven't got such a, so much quality in the group. Uh, I think managing pe- people's expectations and managing people's dreams is the hardest, actually. Because you now back in the day, the teams were a little bit smaller, and there was a lot it was a lot more defined who the leaders were, and teams were very one dimensional. Yeah, you know, a team had one or two leaders or a sprinter, and that was it. And no one, no one won. Outside, outside those those guys, and we've we've always had that attitude of we will give everyone anyone a chance, but it's, it is it's, I don't see it as a problem, but I, I actually find it exciting. Is you want to try to get everyone involved, and you want to give everyone as much chance as possible. And guys are just becoming more ambitious earlier, and they're actually becoming capable of winning bigger races earlier. Whereas before, you'd have to spend 
a, a couple of years as a, as a learning the trade and then and, you, know, you work your way up through a team and now you've got guys second and third year professionals that are looking to take leadership of big races and I think that managing that in a calendar of 10 months with 26, 27 riders, it's, uh, it's, there's always something going on, that's for sure. Well, you're talking about um, it, drawing on the experiences when you were a rider. Um, no doubt when it comes to things like the Tour de France and selection for teams or any of the big races is a difficult one because there's always people on the fringe that are going to get left out. But in your career, you've had some pretty horrific stories of missing out of like uh, Tour de France teams. There's one in particular where you, your family were, were coming over from Australia and uh, you, you were told right at the death, yeah? Yeah, and... Yeah, well, that, that story, that was my first tour I was going to. Well, in 99, I, uh, uh, 99, I decided to uh, bypass the Giro and do the Tour de France. And then one of our riders went positive uh, at, at uh, Tour of Switzerland two weeks before, so we got the wild card pulled. So that was 99 gone. In 2000, it was, uh, I was told I was going and prepared all year. And actually, my dad was already on a plane to leave. And I got a phone call on the Sunday night, the weekend before the tour, so th- three days before we'd left. And the team had changed their mind. They wanted to take one more climber instead of one more guy for the flat. My dad had already boarded the plane about six hours before. And then, obviously, the famous one in 204, where I broke my uh, collarbone and knocked myself out, warming up in the pro- for the prologue. Uh so there was, there was a few times, but I think what all those near misses uh, going to the tour, I eventually did the tour a couple of times, but I think those, what they do, they, they help me. And I think I, I certainly got easier over the years. That I, I still understand that the amount of effort and sacrifice those guys are making to try to make selection for a Giro, for a tour, for a Volta, whatever that may be. And the key there is having empathy. So... I, from a business point of view, we've got to pick our best team and you've got to take the emotion out of it. But I think having all those experiences as a rider, I still, even though it was 15, 20 years ago that I, I had those incidents, I still remember the pain. I still remember the work that I had to do to make those teams. And as long as you don't forget that, I think making hard decisions, it's certainly a lot easier. Mm. Um, before we go to our first break, uh, they wanted to rattle off some old stories. So I was going through the archives and uh, I found some footage from the 2015 uh, Torino race and it was when, uh, Whitey, you almost went blind in one eye. Uh, I'll, I've got a bit of a clip I want to show. OG rocks. Then come around here. Have a look at it now. Sorry, that hurt. Oh no. Sorry, mate. Sorry about that, mate. Oh, mate, that was, that was bad. I remember I saw a, a magic trick and it was all about, you know, the disappearing coin in the bottle. And I thought, oh, you know, this will get laughs on the video. What I didn't expect is, um, one, the pressure of that water to, to come out, but to hit you flush... Now you couldn't you couldn't see for a good oh six or seven hours I reckon it was at one point there we thought geez this could actually be quite serious. Uh, I, I don't know what we must have been short for content, mate. We, were, <laughs> <laughs> we come was, up with a lot of stupid ideas. Was, yeah. was he filming it, mate? Someone. Oh, Shane. Oh, the, the GM was because, filming. It. <laughs> because he's he, he had the final line. He goes, Dan, the coin's not in the bottle. 
he <laughs> 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 was st- he was still joking about it, but um, geez, you look back and you think far out. Some of the stuff we used to do back in the day there, like uh, you know, you you even think of that ACDC video we pulled off in in 2013 um, when whilst everyone in, whilst in the yellow jersey, <laughs> yeah, and also like even pre tour, like um, having everyone there with the the wigs on and stuff. And yeah, and we were sharing it. I think with with Astana or whatever. Yeah, I think they were just looking at us like we were absolutely bonkers. But, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we've, all, we've always been a different team. I mean, that, that hasn't that certainly hasn't changed, mate. Yeah, exactly. Well, we're gonna we're gonna take our first break, and uh, when we come back, we're gonna talk cycling cravings uh, presented by Giordana. <laughs> Cycling Cravings Time presented by Giordana. It's all about what do you guys miss most uh, during this COVID uh, downtime at the moment? Uh, I'll start with you, Lorenzo. What are you missing about not being at the races the most at the moment? Like you said, uh, the, the riders, actually, the, the group, the working together with your stuff. Because that's the thing also, till now, I'm, I'm, I'm now for 17 years sports director, but people are always saying... For me, it has not been a work till now. It's always have been fun to to be to to go to races. And of course, at the end of the season, in normal seasons, you you are happy that you have a break and you stay at home with the family. But after two three weeks, you start feeling again. I want to go with the guys on the road, and I want to do this and this. And you always have new plans. And so that's that's the, that's the thing. But you miss the most at home. You sit at home here in the morning. You wake up. You don't have the the tension from from there's a race coming up. In other other moments, we we go to do recons here. Like for me, for example, for the Belgium Classics, uh, you do recons, and I'm living in the middle of of Flanders. So I, almost every day, I do parts. Like I want to see this again and this again, because you you feel the tension. The races are coming, and that's something you miss because we didn't had we didn't had a view when when it was going on if it was going on this year. So that's something uh, you miss now. And what about you, Whitey? What are you missing the most at the moment? Yeah, look, along the same sort of lines, I think one, like Lorenzo was saying, this this job's not for everyone, uh, and I still do. I still do enjoy travelling. I still get. I still don't mind waiting at an airport. I still go like, get excited when I go into a hotel room. Uh, I love. I love being on the road. It's been such a big part of my life, rider than and this role as well. And I think if you don't enjoy that, I think you're in the wrong gig. The other one is uh, it just shows how much how much sport has been. You know, it's such a big factor in so many people's lives and um, competing. It just, you know, that, yeah, yeah, we've, it's been a great time being at home with your family. But I I just love being with the, with the guys and having that goal and chasing that goal is just so exciting. I think not too many jobs really offer that role and we are very lucky to be involved in professional sport and to be able to be in such a group where a lot of teams aren't like ours. I think we, we have got a very close-knit staff and rider group. And like Renzo said before, it doesn't seem like work a lot of the time because you enjoy the company of the people you work with. And I think that's a big bonus. Um, Lorenzo, we asked um, nearly everyone on, on this potty that does it reset your priorities? Uh, does it make you sort of rework um, you know, what's important and, and what isn't during this period? Uh, the, thing, the, the thing is, with this period, actually... Uh, I realized again how much uh, how much I like to be in, in in cycling and how much I like to be around the people because after some years working in this job, sometimes you 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 get in uh, automatism and, and and you do this job. And, but I think for the motivation and for for 
to come back now it I have I have again I feel younger I want to be there again so I think that's that's a good thing to that that period off so uh, for me it, it I realized in this period that yeah cycling is my life mm. and uh, same with you what is it sort of um, recess priorities and and work out you know what what's important and, and what isn't yeah I think I, I actually through a period of the, for the lockdown, mate, I, I, I struggled a little bit, to be honest. I think I'm just so used to the being part of my life. It, it just not having races. And there was a period there where we didn't actually know what was going to go on. It was, it was pretty grim in Europe. You know, we were losing in Spain, we were losing nearly a thousand people a day were dying. And, mm. you know, to, to even suggest that there was a calendar going to come on was looking pretty unrealistic. Um, we're down to 45 deaths a day now, and you know, in the last two days, more people have died in Spain than Australia in the whole period. Um, mm. But but it's looking very positive at the moment. And if and if, if there's not a second wave of the virus in the next two to three months, our calendar looks very looks like it will go ahead. And I think just in that in that period where we're in between, we'd just been locked down. We didn't have a clue what was going on there, and we, there wasn't too much light at the end of the tunnel. Um, yeah, I just emphasise how much I do miss my job and enjoy and miss the people that I work with. Mm. Well, that that wraps up the cycling craving section. We're going to really fire it up now, and uh, we're going to have another break. And when we come back, we're going to talk victories inside the victory presented by Scott Sports. All right, it's Inside the Victory Time, presented by Scott Sports. We'll start with you, Lepage. What is the victory that stands out the most that you've been involved with, either from a, as a DS or as a rider? Um, I reckon there might be a race in 2016 that was a pretty big one. What, what is it, mate? Yeah, of course, being in the car with uh, behind uh, Matthew Hamey when he won uh, Roubaix. So uh, Matthew came back. Uh, he had a crash in the first weekend in Belgium. So he didn't race almost days. He did only one race, I think, in Spain the week before, just to try if his his uh, his elbow, broken elbow, was was okay because he wanted to do already Flanders and and the pun. No, the pun he wanted to do, but together with the doctor, we decided not let uh, to let do him this because uh, the fracture on his elbow was not one hundred percent recovered yet. So then he did a race in Spain, and there he was in the breakaway and. So, but he came to he came to Roubaix actually to be a part of the team, especially for the other guys, to be a motivation for them. And then, yeah, uh, if you wanted the race worked out like we had we had we said on the meeting completely. That was actually one of the only races that I did as director that everything what we said in the meeting came out. Mm. Yeah, and then the, the final we, we he was there in the front group with, with champions like Bonen, and Bonen was going for his uh, fourth victory and. All Belgium was behind him, and then we beat him. So that was, uh, yeah, for me that was that was the, the top uh, win in, in, in my career. Yeah, it's it's still one of those victories that you can't, your brain still can't process that it actually happened. Like you, no. you know it happened. You've seen the video, like you're there, but you still can't comprehend that he actually pulled that off, given like the yeah. lead up. Like, was, was there any point? Obviously, when he got spat off the back with you know 18k to go, was your brain going, "Oh, well, you know, if he runs top five, it's, it's still going to be a big result." But was that like the the most amount of shock you've ever had, like at a bike race? Uh, I must say, we we were, we were he was uh, early in that uh, big breakaway. And then 
there was some a little bit tailwind, so the race the race would have it was shorter as normal. with good weather. Uh, we had Magnus. Uh, Magnus was court. Yeah. yeah, was also in the breakaway, and that was something he he said. I want to have someone with me. Uh, and the good thing was, like like he, he never had to fight for his position to come on the on the cobbles. He was always relaxed. And then when he when he got dropped in that first corner from uh, Carrefour de l'Arbre, the the most important mm. uh, section and in, in the final of uh, Roubaix. We, we heard over the radio because we had no television connection at that moment. And I said, yeah, I said that will, that will be his point. Because that was normal way. That was the point where for sure he, would, he, he, he was done. He didn't, he didn't race before. And then we heard one moment over the radio like uh, Heyman is coming back. And I must say from that moment, I, I, thought, I started to believe like, oh, we can do podium here. We can do top mm. three. And the second point where I was thinking, mm, he's, he's, he's really strong. When he attacked just before they came into the velodrome, when Bonen had to mm. fight long, long, long to come back on that wheel, I said, oh, Bonen also is not no fresh anymore because he's coming from far. He had to close that gap to the leaders. But the first moment I thought was when he, when he came back after he, uh, he, uh, he was dropped in the beginning of the Carrefour de l'Arbre because of, uh, I think it was, I don't remember the rider from Sky would, who kicked Stannard. Stannard. Stannard took the turn a little bit wide and, and, and he put it Matthew in the gutter. So, but then he came back and from that moment I started to believe in a win. Yeah. To the, um, I think they did a poll and it was like, you know, top Roubaix victories of the last 20 years. I think Cycling News or one of them did it. And I think Heyman come out on top. Do the local Belgies appreciate the scale of that victory and his backstory? And do they get it uh, over there? I must say the first Belgian will, will get it and will, will show up again that he was a really, really big champion as Bonen because he said to him direct, Matthew, don't worry, you deserve this win. So, uh, and also he brought it like this on, uh, this on the, the, the television in the evening and, 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 and he spoke really well about Matthew Heyman as a, as a big champion. And I think that, that helped a lot for the other people also to, to realize that Matthew Heyman uh, deserved that win and that he didn't stole that win. What about uh, Eddie? Does he respect that victory? Yeah, Eddie respect Eddie. Yeah, he, I remember he, after he he he, uh, he called me. He said, "Hey, who's the, who's that? We won that uh, uh, Rupert just to play with me." But uh, Eddie re respects every wins from from guys who are working and fighting for it. Yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, um, he is. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Waddy? You've got a few to go through the Rolodex. Um, what what victory or victories um, stand out for you? Over the journey, yeah, I suppose the the ones early on, I would think. I think the team time trial in Nice. I think uh, you know we just we just won the day before with Simon Gerrans, and it was a pretty relaxed sort of atmosphere. We knew we had a good team, uh, and we knew it'd be tight. Um, but just that day, everything clicked, and the boys came from behind in a very very fast team time trial to roll quick step by under one second. So that, and I think yeah, to, for that culminating in taking the yellow jersey, that was obviously the, a real massive one in 2013. And then I suppose even you know, the Giro, we've had such success over the last six, seven years at the Giro. There's been so many wins, great wins there. But also recently, I suppose, even even last year, that Tour de France, you know, where you know, we just got on a roll last year and uh, to win four stages. And, yeah, I'm sure Simon would have won a fifth one if that stage hadn't been cancelled with, uh, with the weather. Just everything was going really well, and uh, yeah, things might not have gone as as planned. At the, you know, we planned on doing something else with GC, but 
just the way that the the guys got it was just an incredible week or two where you know every second stage we're winning there and uh you know, the Tour de France, everyone knows how hard it is to win at the Tour de France. And when, you, when you're taking stage wins like that in, in breakaways, not even with a, with a sprinter, uh, that's also pretty special. But, yeah, so many to choose from, mate. But they're the two. At the start of the, the, sort of start of our career, I think the team's time trial in Nice in 2013. And then, you know, there's been the Giro. I can't pick apart this, the great wins we've had at the Giro. And then, but last year's Tour was pretty special as well. Well, the, the team's been doing a lot of these flashback series, particularly with the Giro. Um, and one year that was just unbelievable was obviously 2014. Um, they were great memories starting in uh, Ireland. And then when we went over to the uh, Titanic Museum <laughs> to kill a couple of hours and you and I got a photo at the uh, recreating the, the bloody Leonardo DiCaprio scene on the end of the ship. I remember we put a photo in the bathroom and, um, yeah, they defaced it. Uh, it but, stayed there uh, for a couple of years. It stayed there for a couple of years in that bathroom, mate. Yeah. Um, but finishing uh, with two riders that year was um, was pretty gnarly as well. That was just a weird experience, particularly being at the team dinners and everyone was just on the one little table. And yeah, we had this massive bus, and there was only like four of us on there with a the driver. Like that, that was a, a pretty uh, crazy year. That one. It does. It just shows how emotions and things can change. Yeah, you know, we had we had that big win in double in uh, in Dublin. Uh, and so Belfast, we held the jersey for six or seven stages. Bling won a stage. Dog, we lost the jersey. Windog won the next stage. Then we had the guys getting sick left, right, and centre. Then, you know, Bling skinned himself. Guys were going bing, bong, boom. Then Santa Marita disappeared. And then uh, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, we've got two guys left with five days to go and two non-climbers with four mountain stages and a flat finish in Trieste. And, uh Mm. Yeah, I, I remember picking up some reading some media and I was talking about some people saying, "Oh, the disaster that you know that we that we'd had as a team, foreign media that we ha- we finished with two riders." And I'm like, "Well, the Grand Tours are not about it, and not about fin. Well, they're not all about finishing. You know, we not, I think it was a one other team had won three stages, but to win three stages to have the jersey for six or seven days, <laughs> I see that as a success. And uh, yeah, we we can't control crashes, we can't control illnesses, and." Uh, it was a funny old tour, but yeah, the highs and the lows in that three weeks were one I'll never forget, that's for sure, mate. But yeah, I reckon that was the most fun I'd had in ages that last week when it was just like, yeah, a handful of us left. That was uh, that was awesome. But uh, anyway, Lepage's audio is cutting out. We're going to uh, tackle that problem. And uh, when we come back, we've got Ask Anything. So that's all the fan questions presented by Shimano. Ask Anything Time, uh, presented by Shimano. This is all the fan questions, so thanks for firing them through. We're going to kick things off with Fiona Graham, and she wants to know, how does being a DS compare to being a pro rider? What, if anything, do you miss about your days as riders? We'll start with you, Waddy. Uh, I'm someone I, I, I really did enjoy training and that, that physical exertion. Uh, and the first thing you realise when you swap over, swap roles, is – it, it might make you fatigue, but it's a different fatigue. And as an athlete, it's a it's really it's a physical fatigue, and that fatigue is, is switched. It's a, it's a different stress. And I did actually miss that first six months, first six to nine months. Just uh, I like going out and doing four hour training and hurting myself and having those sort of physical goals. And now they're just the goals switch. What about you, Lorenzo? Yeah, that's more or less the same as Whitey, uh, uh, as a rider. The only thing you have to be to, to do is, is being uh, in condition when you have to do your races, and also you don't realize actually when you come from a rider a director then 
you don't realize as a rider how much work is actually behind the scenes going on to do uh, to help you to do your job. So that's that's a big change. Like you said, in the beginning you miss the the, the efforts you do. Your your body is is changing, but but they have a, another kind of stress sitting in the car, and sometimes you don't have control over situations, things like that. There's a difference, but uh, yeah, more or less the same. Uh, Alison Bruce, she wants to know what's the best thing you've been given during a race by the amazing Mitchell and Scott fans. Start with you, Waddy. Ooh, ooh bit. She's well, speed a lot. Yeah, <laughs> there has there has certainly there's been a lot. I reckon one of the pies I had, there was a pie down under, and it was a homemade pie, and it was uh, I actually I can't remember what was in it, but it had a red wine in it. It was a like this boot, this uh, very unique pie. And I think, and I had it just before the start of uh, start of the stage there, and it was probably the best pie I've ever eaten for sure. And it was ha- handmade, and the guy who delivered it brought it back the same one at the end of the Tour de Nanda. But I can't remember what was in it, but it was incredible. It was in like a foil wrapping. I remember right. this pie. It yeah. was still warm. It was still yeah. warm, mate. Yeah, it's like he's literally pulled it out of the oven. The wheels the have car. screeched straight to the start. Um, and also the, the fan who dressed up as a pie, that she was an absolute belter that year yeah, getting yeah. into the spirit of things. Yeah, she was a bit um, of a regular. Um, but I noticed that did you guys stop eating as many pies towards like the last couple of down-unders or you just weren't putting them as much on the videos? No, we definitely – I think after about five years or six years of pie eating, I remember finishing one. I remember finishing one year, mate. And yeah. having inter- having indigestion for a couple of days, like mm. we got to, we we're getting up there twenty plus pies. Uh, and it's not good. No, it's not good. Uh, <laughs> knock, knocking down three or four pies a day. Look, I do I do like my pies, and when I go back to Oz, I do. It's only, yeah, I think I do sell them in the UK, but they're not the same as Aussie pies. But I certainly haven't been flogging the pies like uh, back in the day, mate. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Lorenzo? Um, would it be like a, a big duval or what's the best thing you got from a fan <laughs> over the over the years? I remember there was always a fan who was a really big fan from uh, uh, Magnus and he brought uh, beer over, yeah, with a duval yeah. or, or Grimbergen or things like that. Did I miss so like, be- beers and pies, yeah, pretty yeah. easily pleased yeah, these I, boys. I, I did never done under because we have a lot of Australian directors, so I don't, I cannot... And and bringing a pie over from Australia till here, it's not it's not working. Eh? <laughs> yeah, we'll have to uh, get the recipe. Uh, I remember. I remember. I ate, I, I ate pies when I the week before I sold you that bike. Yeah, I was for some tour there, and then I tried the pies, uh, and they were really good. And then you had plenty of money to buy heaps of pies yeah. after you rolled me that year. That's for and sure. And then I sold that bike, cash. and I had oh, was it was good? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right, moving along. Stephen McLaughlin, uh, he goes, Matt, do the non-Aussies get your sense of humour? Um, what's the funniest moment? In general, yes. Uh, in general, yes. Oh, look, I think we've got to be with some of the, with some of the with some of the international guys. They um, they certainly learn quick. They certainly learn quick. But I suppose for me, I've got to speak a little bit slower. As you know, I do get a bit excited at times, Jonesy. So mm. I think some of the guys where English is not their first language, uh, you got to just slow down a little bit there. But uh, you, know, you only have to spend a couple of months on this team, and you sort of get the humour. So in general, yes, they yes they do. Uh, here's one from Marius for you, Lorenzo. How do you pick up a rider after a bad day in a in a Grand Tour or in the classics? Like, what's your general uh, way of going about it? 
But the thing, the thing is, we, we before the race, we always say that, that, that there are no uh, robots, those riders. There, everyone can have a bad day. After the race, we have the debriefing in the bus, so uh, we try to give them as much much as possible time off in the hotel. That we don't talk about racing anymore because they also need. And like I said, in the, in in a, in a big tour or in, in in classics, it can be your goal and can be your dream, and and you you can prepare for months for that race. But if you have a bad day that day, you're not a robot. So uh, and that's something that we always say to riders: as long. That you do the maximum and you are you, you are fair with yourself and to us like it's not my day okay that that can happen mm. and I think as long as once they feel that that they can they can actually make make mistakes and being bad that's not the end of of, of the year or not the end of the career there are other possibilities but as long they they are fair with that and they they just tell us and then you can change the plan if you have a crack we've got you back just come up no the, the, no but that's that's it that's it people <laughs> like. We also do, we also have bad days, so uh, I think that's a thing in this team, and that's a good thing about uh, about this team that people know they can fail. I'm mm. um, getting back to the question before, Whitey. I just thought of a cracker. They said, like you know, Aussie sense of humor. What's one of the funniest moments? I reckon one of the funniest moments we had was when we were staying at the uh, AIS in uh, Varese, and uh, oh, we, we were staying <laughs> we were staying in. With the under, was it the under eighteen soccer team? Yeah, and even younger, I reckon the under seventeen, under seventeen do, football do, team. Do you want to quickly tell this story? Yeah, okay. So uh, we were staying there. It was just before Milan San Remo, and uh, we had to kill two days uh, in Milan before the race. And uh, so we had three or four riders, and myself and uh, and you, and we were there. And so it was after dinner. Uh, I went to your room to watch a uh, fight to club. Watch, to watch fight. To watch Fight Club, <laughs> yeah. but I didn't. I didn't lock my door. I just pulled my door closed. And uh, the only people staying there was like, we had six or seven people from our team, and we had maybe twenty guys from this uh, from the under seventeen national football team or soccer team. Anyway, so I watched the movie, and uh, off I went. All right, Jonesy, see you in the morning, mate. And uh, so I was basically staying directly across the hall, which is like two meters away from the room. So I've gone in there, and uh, I've opened the opened the door, and uh, I've I've walked in, and I've got to my bed. And uh, there was someone else in my bed, and I was just like, "What the hell? <laughs> what the hell?" And uh, and uh, this kid, I was like, I looked down. There was this young kid asleep in my bed. Anyway, so I've gone there, and I've uh, I've I've gone across to you. I said, "Jonesy, look at this." I locked on the door, and you got uh, what, what, what? anyway. We've gone in there. There's someone the in my bed. I'm like, "What? What the hell's going on?" <laughs> so we've gone in. Turn two feet. Do these feet sticking off the edge of the off the edge of the bed? We've gone in there and we've turned the light on and we've given this kid a tap on the shoulder and sort of wake up, mate, wake up. Anyway, the the kid's woken up and he's like, "Who the hell are these blokes?" You know. And I said, uh, and he said, "Hey, hey, hey who, who are you?" I said, "Hey, I said, mate, mate, you're in the wrong room." I said, "I don't know how you got here." You're in the wrong room. He said, what do you mean? This is my room. And anyway, he's looked around and he's seen my stuff all around the room, <laughs> realised that he'd made a mistake. And I said, what? And this guy was in his boxer shorts and a singlet. Because so, he said it. He goes, it was the right room last night. Like, yeah. No, what? No, well, it wasn't. I mean, what, what room are you in? He said, oh, six or something. So we've got six, that's on the same side but down the hallway. Anyway, uh, we've gone down. We, we haven't got keys to the room. So we had to go downstairs, get the security guards. Security guards come back up. Let this kid into his room. He must have so he must have gone to the toilet or something. Slept, walked, and walked into my room, and uh, pumped and just gone to bed. Anyway, I've, we thought uh, that would be the end of it. He's gone to his room. That, 
That's it. We thought that was the end of the story. We had a bit of a chuckle and uh, and off we went. All right, Jonesy, you'll see you in the morning, mate. See you in the morning. Anyway, I've gone in there, gone into my room, gone into the bathroom, started cleaning my teeth. Anyway, I've started to clean my teeth and I've looked down at the at the at the toilet. Anyway, this kid has gone into my room and uh, he's done number twos. He's dropped the kids off in my oh. in my toilet, <laughs> hadn't flushed or used toilet paper. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> I've heard of sleepwalking, but I've never heard of sleep pooing. And that's and what he did. So I've gone again. I've just gone, what the hell? Put the toothbrush down, wash my mouth out, going back over, knocked on your door again. I said, oh, Jones, I, I was just like in hysterics. I said, Jonesy, have a look at this. And you've like looked at me, like, what the what the hell are you got me to look at now? And I said, look, and I, I couldn't speak. Have a look here. Going in the bathroom and there's this bloke laid a big cable out. My, <laughs> oh, sorry if anyone's toilet. listening to this while eating dinner, but he was carbo-loading because it wasn't just, <laughs> <laughs> it was full. That, that was unbelievable. Yeah. And unfortunately, they left very early in the morning. They were gone right. before we before we woke up because we would have given that kid a fair bit of stick. I tell you that. Yeah. He's probably gone on to play for Liverpool, or you know, he's probably a superstar <laughs> now. But one thing for sure, he had skid marks. We had skid marks the next day. <laughs> uh, you can't script that sort of stuff. Uh, all right, moving along to the fan questions. John wants to know for both of you, what's your favourite race and why? We'll start with you, Lorenzo. Uh, my favourite race. When I talk about one-day races, of course, uh, Flanders and Roubaix, I think they are similar. They're one of those two. And then uh, for the stage races, it's uh, the Giro is for me my favorite stage race. Yeah. And uh, Wadi, what's your favorite race and why? Yeah. Uh, for one-day racing, I I have a big – I love Amstel Gold. I think it's a great race, real technical. And I think – I got it sort of into Amstel Gold. Uh, my big, my big inspiration to sort of start to get into cycling was Phil Anderson, and uh, he won that race in '81 off the top of my head. Uh, and so I, I love that region uh, in Holland, Belgium, where in Germany, where it all meets in the one sort of place. Uh, that's my favourite one-day race. And as far as stage racing, it's uh, hands down, it's a Giro. It's uh, I, now I love Italian culture. I love the food. I love the atmosphere around the Giro. As you know, Jonesy and Lorenzo, it's a very different field than, than the Tour de France. And uh, yeah, for me, maybe it was my first Grand Tour back in '98. Have missed two or three versions in the last twenty years, and it's I just real I really do feel at home uh, in, in the Giro d'Italia. Uh, final question as for you, Whitey from Ushi Kramer uh, wants to know, Matt White, how long will you do this job for? As long as they have me. As long as they have me. Now look, it's uh, it's one of those jobs. I look since my career, I haven't done I haven't done anything else. So it's you know, finished school. Went through the AOS, went through the national team, turned professional, had my career, and went straight from December being a professional athlete to January taking a team on a training camp. And uh, it's a role that I've got a lot of passion for. And I, I'm pretty sure that any other job I do in the future, I'm not going to have the same passion or drive for. I, I just don't think it's possible. And, uh, you know, I've, I'm set up here in Europe, been here a long time with my family, and uh, it's a role that I, I really love, and especially in this organisation. The difference is, and I've worked with two teams and the national team, is that being part of the setup of this team and the creation of this team, it really does feel like your team. If, you, if I had to go to another team in the future or for whatever reasons, it's, it's certainly, I know it's not going to feel the same. It's certainly not going to mm. feel the same. But creating this team in 2011 and being here from the start, and it's, it's a role that I, that I love and I don't want to go anywhere or, or work anywhere else. 
Good stuff, mate. Well, that finishes the fan questions. Uh, ask anything by Shimano. We're going to have our final break, and then we've got the famous quiz uh, presented by Pirelli. All right, fellas, it's quiz time. Uh, now, I had to think about what's a set of questions that is going to be pretty close between you two. Now, uh, Lorenzo, we mentioned before, you're really good mates with Eddie, the great Eddie Merckx, greatest cyclist of all time. And why do you, you're a bit of a boffin when it comes to cycling history. So I thought, why not fire off 10 questions that I've just stolen off the internet? I think uh, Cycling Weekly ran these uh, a couple of years ago. But they're 10 Eddie Merckx questions. Ooh. Uh, uh, so... Ooh. Uh, and I'll give you three answers. If you know what the answer is, yell it out. Uh, let's go. How many Grand Tour stage wins has Merckx got to his name? Is it 51, 64, or 34? 51. 64. Uh, Lorenzo correct. It's 64. Total Lorenzo's Grand Tours, yeah, right. Mm. All right, question number two. In total, how many days has Merckx spent in the Tour de France yellow jersey? 102, 85, or 96? 96. 96 uh, is correct. Lorenzo's out to a 2 0. He knows Eddie <laughs> better than Whitey at this point. <laughs> Question number three In which year did Merckx become the first winner of the Triple Crown? 1970, 72, or 74? Oh, man. You never go again. Yeah. In which year did Merckx become the first winner of the Triple Crown? 70, yeah. 72, 74. Well, they got it wrong. Yeah, what, year was he, what year was he world champion, uh, Lorenzo? Don't remember. Well, just, just have a stab. 74, 72 or 70? I'll have a crack at 72. Yeah, 74. Yep, 74. <laughs> you might have to go to the third umpire and look at that, but Lorenzo's up to a 3-0 lead. Why are you going to have to come back with a bit of uh, wind up your pipe? <laughs> uh, question number four, what outside influence hindered Merckx in the 1975 Tour de France? Was it he was punched by a spectator, snow in the Alps or French collusion punch. to get home a winner? Punched. Punch. Yep. Whitey, punch, you're back. <laughs> it's 3-1. Question five, for what reason was Merckx asked to stay away from the 1973 Tour de France? Uh, he was suspected of doping. Yes. The organisers... Uh, just hang on. The organisers wanted the Tour de France to be his only grand tour or the French public were becoming hostile to his dominance. Three. Yep, correct. You've got to listen to the, all the answers. I'm just trying to uh, jump in early to get that. 4-1. All right, question six. Which is the only classics Merckx did not win during his career? Was it Ulmer and Hedvold? Yes. Paris Tours, Amstel Gold Race. <laughs> I mean, this was really pretty stupid in the end because no one knows Eddie better than Lorenzo. Question seven, which city has an underground station named after him? Antwerp, Paris or Brussels? Brussels. Yes. Whitey. Correct. Question Lorenzo eight. knew that. He just didn't answer. Yeah, he's just <laughs> let you in. Uh, Eddie, 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 Lorenzo knows these answers better than Eddie does, mate. Lorenzo probably submitted these to Cycling Weekly. <laughs> question, question eight. Which race did Merckx launch in 2002? Tour of Beijing, Qatar, or Dubai? Qatar. Yeah. We were um, there, Jones, you remember? That's right. It was good times, huh? Uh, I, I, found that, I, I will send you that video later on where you were singing with your guitar. That's I, right. I still have it. Do you remember um, we we um, hocked a cigarette off one of the marshals in <laughs> during the race? <laughs> he, even, he even went back and got your lighter on the motorbike. 
Be interesting if we'd ever see racing back in Qatar. Yeah, well, that's it. But didn't, didn't they say that um, a lot of those um, the UAE countries, obviously Iran got it pretty bad, but I think a lot of them, the other ones have been pretty good with the spread yeah, of no, COVID. No, it's more just the fact that it was a bit of a fad there. They were the first country in the Middle East to get racing up. And then <clears> after <throat> the Worlds were there, they stopped. And uh, I think whoever was running the show there, uh, they sort of lost a bit of interest in cycling. Whereas now, now it kicked off in Bahrain, UAE. This year we saw a tour in Saudi Arabia just mm. before the lockdown started. So be interesting if we see competition uh, back in Qatar. Mm. Hey guys, uh, did, did you notice that when you were talking about that uh, Netflix series from uh, Jordan? He was always smoking cigars till 10 minutes before the game? Yeah, well, look at his eyes. They're bloody yellow. Yellow. There's something going, you know, on. There's something they're, going they're, on there, isn't there? Well, they're going like, what is going on with his eyes? And it's like, dude, he's, yeah, he's sucking down six or seven cigars and drinking whiskey like for breakfast. Like, just, you know, just some giggles. it's going to yeah. have an effect. <laughs> They're not going to be pearly whites like with that sort of routine, are they? No, no, no. Actually, in, in the interviews, you see on the right-hand side, he had a glass of whiskey and a cigar. Yeah. Like they planted it there on the, on the, on the next, well, right next to him. Well, you know, they, they couldn't release it any earlier because they had to wait until he agreed to release the footage. That was part of the deal like when they shot it all. So he'd sat on it for – he's pretty smart because he sat on it for 20 years. So the next generation that would have never have seen him play, that are all saying, oh, LeBron's the greatest and Kobe's the greatest. Well, hang on. He can release this and now yeah, yeah. they say, oh, shit, hang on. That Jordan guy is pretty good as well. And especially in the lo- – one, in the lockdown. Mm. And two, yeah. like I was saying before, mate, I'm a mad sports fan. I knew Jordan was good, but after seeing the series, I didn't realise he was that good. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so he, he has certainly he has certainly ticked a few boxes, and his and his whole legacy. Uh, mate, like, I don't know how how much money would he still make from Jordan Jordanaires. You know? Oh, he like hundreds of millions a year, yeah. easy. Um, we've only got two more Eddie Merckx questions. <laughs> uh, Merckx joined FEMA. Is it pronounced FEMA in 1968? But what do FEMA produce? Is it coffee machines, instant coffee, or tea bags? Coffee machines. Yeah. Yes, that's correct, Lorenzo. Uh, last question: Which football team does Merck support? Anderlecht. Anderlecht. Lorenzo, you've won in a canter. You've won in a canter, Eddie. You'd be very proud, Lorenzo. You can ring him after this and say, "Hey, mate." Took wide no, to the cleaners. No, yeah, took him to the cleaners. Nine-one. <laughs> hey, um, it's been an awesome chat, boys. Um, Obviously, over the years, you know, we had so many great memories and uh, it's been great even going back through some of the old backstages and, and reliving a lot of this stuff. I got a, a really nice message from um, Swaino the other day and he said, like, you know, the fact that he can go back and look at some of these stages from 2014 and, you know, we're talking about things that happened in 2013. They're all there to have a look at. But, um, yeah, it's great reconnecting and, and sharing a few of these stories. I always give the guys a chance to have one last word to the people uh, listening or watching on YouTube. Start with you, Lorenzo. What do you want to say to the people tuning in for this episode? Uh, to the people in Australia, I want to say it's really, I'm really happy to work for this team. And uh, it's a special uh, atmosphere. It's a team that made that changed my life actually the last uh, nine years now. So uh, let's hope it can go on for a long, long, long time. And uh, I learned a lot of people in this uh, the last nine years, like you, Jonesy, and a lot of guys that yeah, it made it actually it, it made my life uh, it changed my life. Yeah. 
Uh, good stuff, mate. And what about you, Whitey? What, what do you want to say to the, the people tuning in? Yeah, stay, stay, stay watching us, stay supporting us. Uh, I think uh, one thing that you did pioneer, Jonesy, there back in the day is we, the way we brought the team to the general public and exposed who we were and exposed the, the culture and the atmosphere of the team. And no one else, no, I don't think anyone else has done it successfully since. And I, we, we're still the same team. We're still the same team. So, uh, you know, what you see is what you get. And uh, keep supporting us because uh, we know we've got a lot of great fans all around the world. And uh, your support really is uh, as valuable. Uh, good stuff, mate. We'll, um, we'll have to do another version of this podcast, the uncut version. Um, there's some even better stories. Hey, Lorenzo, like those trips to Canada. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, crackers, hey. But uh, we'll reconnect on another time. Uh, hopefully, in person over a few doubles once they uh, open up the yeah. borders and stuff. But uh, yeah, now nah, looking forward to, to racing. Hopefully, getting back pretty soon, boys. And um, yeah, all the best to, to yourselves and, and the families. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll touch base again soon. But uh, yeah, take it easy. Cheers, Jonesy. Okay, Good to catch up, mate. No See worries. You. See you guys See you soon. Later, boys.